So we're going to be in Luke chapter 15 today. You can go ahead and turn there. And then I've got lots of other scriptures we're going to cover, and we are going to go quick. And I give you hope. Um, we got out before 10.06 or 10.10 in the first hour, so we're going to be okay. So, but um, we're going to run, we're going to go quick, and y'all got to listen fast because i got a lot we're going to cover. So I'm continuing Pastor Brooks' Heary Ciro's, how do you say that? Heroes <laughs> series today. Yeah, we got to do better than this or it's going to be a long hour. Okay, well, I'm continuing Pastor Brooks' Heroes series today. And I wanted to look at scripture to see a great example of a heroic father. And, and I don't know, maybe y'all can do better than me. I'm pretty good at Bible trivia most of the time. I've grown up a preacher's kid my whole life. I'm usually pretty good at finding Bible people and Bible thinking. I couldn't think of a lot of really heroic fathers in the Bible. Maybe y'all can help me out. And so when I went to look at Scripture, the best heroic father that I could find was God himself. We look at Scripture, we see clearly a great picture of God as the heroic father. The, one, the great thing also I'll say about the, all the men of the Bible who were fathers, and I'll give them this, is that I'm thankful that God's Word includes their stories, good, bad, and ugly, and then ultimately shows God's grace and the work that he does. And I'm thankful for that, one, because it helps me to see that it's true, because if they wanted to write a story that only made everybody look good, they could have done that. They could have left out a lot of things that they included in the story. And that was God's work, God's story that he wanted to tell. But second, it also encourages me because as, as a man, as a husband, as a father, it encourages me that God's not finished with me either. That, uh, that I'm not perfect, and I know that, and we often know ourselves better than anyone else can. And so to see that God's grace is good and that God's grace is perfect, no matter how many times we fail. So we may not find many great heroic fathers in the Bible. There's some really good ones. I thought about Esther and Mordecai a few weeks ago. And Mordecai, though he wasn't a biological father, became an adoptive father and was a great example of one of those. But today we're going to be looking at Luke chapter 15. We're going to see the example of God as father and the ultimate heroic father, the one who is, who is the greatest father to us all. And, and whether you are a father, a mother, or a son or daughter, wherever you stand in that, in that line, whether you've got kids or not, whether you're married or single, every one of us needs to look at this day and look at ultimately at the one who's the greatest standard of what a father looks like. And to let that change us, to let it affect us. And we're going to talk about what that looks like for fathers, but also what it can look like for mothers too, and for those who are married or single, um, and what it can look like for every one of us as believers in the family of God, as God's put people in our paths that he calls us to minister to and to, to work with. In my own life, you know, I can't say that I've had those, you know, necessarily heroic moments. You know, I've had moments where I needed to come to my assistance of my family and to others. So, yeah, there's maybe some of those. I mean, I think the only thing I've ever saved is maybe my dog went off the edge of the trail in the mountains one time and I had to hold onto the leash. But he's a, a seven-pound chihuahua at the time. So, you know, it's pretty easy to pull him back and, to, you know, make it. But probably the closest, like, heroic moment I ever had with one of my kids was uh, the time after we had had a, a series of studies that we had a fellowship at um, Greg Herlibus's house. We, uh, the whole families and all the peoples had come together from that class. And in this fellowship, they had a pool at the time. And so the kids brought over their clothes and their stuff to swim. And um, my youngest at the time, who was now my second one, um, when he was little and um, he wasn't quite ready to swim all by himself yet, hadn't had his swim lessons, he always had to have his floaty. He'd have his float ring with the wings on the side. He'd have that and he was ready to go. And when he had that, he was bold and he was brave. So this was Luke. Luke is now about three inches taller than me. And, uh, but at this time, he was small enough that I could y yank him out if I needed to. But he could go on his own without us having to get wet. And as a parent, you know, sometimes that's nice when you go to a pool party and you don't have to get in the pool. So, you know, when, when he was able to go independently, that was a great thing. He could jump off the side. He could swim. He could paddle. And with that floaty, he could do whatever he needed to do. 
But inevitably, as we were standing out there, and I kept thinking, he's going to do it, he's going to do it, and I kept waiting for it, and sure enough, he did it. Without the floaty on, he went to the side and forgot that he couldn't swim. He jumped in, starts paddling pretty, pretty well at first, and I'm like, wait, he might just do this, and then nope, he's going under. And there I was in my shorts, in my t-shirt, no swimming trunks, no towel, nothing. I didn't come ready to swim, you know, I, I had not even changed yet. I throw my phone down, because my flip phone, of course, wasn't waterproof at the time, you know, back then. So I throw my phone down, throw everything aside, I jump in the water, close and all, pick him up and get him out of the water and let him choke and sputter on the side until he can get his breath. That's the closest I've ever come to a heroic moment, you know. It's one of those moments where everything else becomes secondary. One of those moments where I had to just jump in and and let that moment be the the moment that I needed to be in. That, That I had to just set everything aside. It didn't matter if I got wet. It didn't matter if the phone even got messed up because I kind of tossed it and threw it. It didn't matter really what was going on around me or who else saw me or what I was going to look like afterwards even though I stood around the rest of the night soaking wet. It didn't matter. None of it mattered. All that mattered was getting him out of the water as quickly as possible and making sure that he was okay. You know, those moments still come up. In fact, just this week I got a call when Luke was supposed to be home. The same boy who's now, you know, three inches taller than me, the same boy calls me at 9.55. He's getting off at 10 o'clock. And I say, what's wrong? Because, you know, unless he's calling to say I'm bringing home ice cream, I don't know why else he's calling me five minutes before he should be home. So, what's wrong? He's like, it's okay, it's all right. I said, are you okay? Yeah, I'm okay, I'm okay. But, and he's, he's hemming and hawing, having a hard time getting to the point. Thankfully, it was just a couple of pop tires, and, you know, we worked through it, and we got there. But in that moment, I had to take that step. I had to take the moment to come to the rescue. And I'll say, as they get older and as the troubles get a little bit bigger, the, the times of me seeing myself and saying, okay, what am I going to do in this moment? And it was one of those moments where thankfully I could actually pull some heroic mo- moves, like not blowing my top, not, not saying you did what, you know, not, not going straight to that moment of, of coming down hard and, and coming down against him and what he had done. It was one of those moments where I had to set myself aside and what I wanted at the moment and the frustrations or the fact that we're going to be up for another couple of hours waiting on a tow truck, all that sets aside to take care of him in that moment. It's one of those moments where we have to just step up as dads and as moms have to so often do too, where we have to just set those things aside and take a heroic moment. You know, we all need rescue sometimes. We all need someone to come to our help at times. And if you're a parent, you know your kids, they often do need it. It may not mean that they've got to be pulled back from sudden death, but they often need your help and they need a rescue in many ways, as do many other people around us. We're focusing on Father's Day today, but I want to I ask you and, and challenge you to ask yourself, how God may be asking you even to pour into the lives of other people. If you're here today and you're not a dad with kids, you may think, well, this is not going to be for me at all. No. If you're a mom, I want you to interpret these things we talk about and think, okay, if this is for the dads, how is it also for the moms? If you're a mom and you're here and there's no dad in the picture right now, I want you to look at these things and think how God is calling you to step up and maybe live out some of these things for your kids and be there for them in those moments. Maybe you're here and you don't have kids of your own. Maybe you're here and you're 12 years old and you're like, I don't, I don't have kids. What are we talking about? You know, what is this about? I want you to look at this and to think, how's God calling you to first focus on him and put your sights on him? And how is he calling you to think about those who come behind you, regardless of how old you are? So as we look at this, we're going to look at seven biblical principles. And that's where I said, you got to listen fast. We're going to go fast. So we're going to look at seven biblical principles as we look at how God calls us to become the people of God and the fathers of God that he calls us to be and see what it means for all of us. Look, let's look at Luke chapter 15, beginning in verse 11. Luke 15, the context, Jesus was being challenged because he ate with sinners 
and with tax collectors. He ate with people who needed help and knew they needed help. And the Pharisees came to him, and you can see clearly by the pictures that Jesus gives in Luke 15 that he's drawing a clear line from those who need help and those who need help and don't know they need help. And he never once says anyone's truly without the need of help. It's more of the ignorance that people often find themselves in. He gives three pictures of what it means to be lost. Luke 15 is the parables of the lost things or the lost people. The, the first one is the, the parable of the lost sheep. In Luke 15, verse 1, beginning there, he starts and it sets the scene. And in the parable of the lost sheep, he talks about the farmer or the shepherd who would lose, if he lost one sheep, he would leave the other 99 to go find the one and that he would rejoice greatly over that one. And he says that the, the angels in heaven or that heaven would celebrate greater over the one righteous person who repents than the 99 people who need no repentance. I'll give you a hint. We all need repentance. We all need to come back to God and realize our need. His point was to those who the 99 of saying, we didn't need your help in the first place. But they would rejoice over the one who came to the Lord in repentance. The second one was of a woman who lost a coin. He gives common everyday illustrations of things. It wasn't a fairy tale. It was a picture of something that could have easily happened. A shepherd could easily lose a sheep. And a wife could easily lose a coin, which in that day was worth a day's wage, the drachma. It was worth a day's wage. Might have even been a part of her, her dowry, part of her wedding uh, presents that were given to her at her wedding. So it could have had even more sentimental value. So that loss of that coin would mean so much to her. So he tells a story that, uh, that would relate to men, a story that would relate to women as well, or anyone who values a day's wage. And he tells these stories to show the value of one person to the Lord, how much we matter to God. And I want to set that clear to say that if you get nothing else, as we look into the word in Hebrews, in, I'm sorry, in Luke 15, verse 11, as we look into the word here, I want you to see the great love that God has for you. Because the third story he tells of a son who would turn his back on his life, turn his back on his family, and go and go his own way, and then come back and see the faithfulness of the Father. Turn with me in Luke 15, verse 1. We're going to read these verses together. It says that Jesus said, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of the sons said to his father, Father, give me the share of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all that he had, and he took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country. He began to be in need. He went, he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. The man has come to the end of himself. He's gone from bad to worse to worst. And at this point, he realizes his desperate need. He realizes how far he's fallen, that not only has he spent everything that he had, not only has he wasted it with people that were a waste to him, but on top of that, now he finds himself in the lowest of places. For a Jewish man to find himself feeding pigs, which were unclean, and then wanting the food that they're eating, he can't get any lower, not only personally, but also spiritually, because as an unclean male at this point, he would not be able to approach the, the, the temple, the tabernacle, to be able to come in worship. So the picture that Jesus is drawing is of a man who comes to his end. And in verse 17, it says, But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I, I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Now listen to this whole speech he prepares in his head. Father, I have sinned against you and against heaven, and I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. So he has a whole plan of what he's going to do. He arose, he came to his father. 
But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him, he felt compassion, he ran, he embraced him, and he kissed him. The picture of the father is one of great compassion. Contrast that with the picture of the son. The son was really a worthless son. He asked for his inheritance before his father was dead. He basically said, you're dead to me. I want to get away from you. I want to get away from the family. I want to go live my life. Just leave me alone. He goes and goes his own way, turning his back on the father. The father, though, has great compassion on the son. He sees him a long way off. And I've got a question for you. A little easy pop quiz here. If the father sees him when he's a long way off, what is the father doing when the son returns? He's watching for him. He's looking for him. We don't know if he was in the field. We don't know if he was by the mailbox. We're not sure where he was, but he was watching for his son. He was expecting him to come home. He was hoping he would come home. Remember, Jesus is trying to communicate how much we are valued by God. And we start to see that God the Father loves us like this, that God loves us so much that he is watching and waiting and and patiently looking for us to come to him. How much love and how much really perseverance and patience God has towards us that even when we've turned away from him, that he wants us to return to him. Then we see the father and his great compassion that he ran to the son. He fell on the son. He hugged him. He kissed his his neck. It was a great sign of endearment, a great sign of closeness and compassion that he loved his son so much. He broke all social norms. A man who was wealthy like this, who could afford to have land and servants, he wouldn't be running down the road on a dusty day with his robes flying. This isn't what would be normal for that day. He would have caused a sight. He would have made people notice what he was doing. And while this is a parable, a story that may not have actually been based on specific individuals, you can believe that any Pharisee who had a lost son who had turned his back on the law and turned his back on God and turned his back on his family was hoping and praying for the day that he would return. Hoping and praying for the day that he could get to be this father. So they knew exactly what God was speaking to their hearts right then. They knew what Jesus was communicating of what it looks like for a father's love. In Psalm chapter, in Psalms chapter 103, 13, Jesus has shown us many times in the gospel of how we relate to God as father. But in Psalm 103, 13, his people would be told, as a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. Jesus called for the people to see that God is Father. When his disciples said, Lord, how do we pray? The first words were, Our Father who is in heaven. Holy is your name. It's to relate to God as Father. Jesus would say in the book of John that that if we've seen him as his disciples did, then they had seen the Father and they could have a relationship with him. Jesus calls us to a relationship with him so that we can have a relationship with the Father. The Father has great compassion on us, so much love and compassion on us that he has sent his Son to die for us, that we can have a relationship with him for this life that will go on forever. He loves us so much that that he calls us to him and he looks for us to come to him as we trust in the grace and the salvation that he offers freely in Jesus Christ. Let's pick back up in Luke 15 and let's finish up this section with the parable of the lost son. In verse 21, let's see, the father, I'll read back in verse 20. It says, he arose, he came to his son. I'm sorry, he arose, he came to his father while he was still a long way off. His father saw him, felt compassion, ran and embraced him. He kissed him. The son said to him, father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger or in his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this my son was dead he's alive again he was lost and he is found 
and they began to celebrate. I encourage you, we're not going to look at all of Luke 15, but if you read the rest, you see that there's another son. And this other son didn't really have a great heart for the father either. And he was less than enthusiastic about the son who would come back. But what we also see is there's a great father, a great father who loved his son so much that the son couldn't even finish the speech that he had prepared. Before he could say, just make me one of your servants, just let me live here and take care of me the you can. Before he could do any of that, the father said, wait, 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 my son has come home. He says, let's put a robe on him like an honored guest. Let's put a ring on his finger to show his standing in this family. Let's put shoes on his feet. He's no servant. Before he could finish the speech he had prepared, his father takes over and shows complete and total compassion. We look at God as father. We see that no matter what our situation's been, no matter those broken examples we may have had, even, even ones of us like myself who've had godly fathers, we, we all make mistakes. We all see that we are fallen fathers. We're fallen people. We, we, we fall in the footsteps of people who do their best to follow after the Lord and train us up. And in many, many cases, some of you may not have walked in places like that. You may not have had a godly father. You may have had a broken example of what a father looks like. And even relating to God as father can be a difficult place. God comes to us as a father with compassion. He comes to us with the greatest love. He's done everything necessary for us to, us to have a relationship with him. And if we want to be, I'll say, the fathers and the mothers who really can truly train up our children and lead them into a relationship with him, it starts first when we follow him. So the first principle I want you to take away is follow your father. Follow your father. And again, you may have had an earthly father who was not the best example. And maybe there's some things you have to kind of, as we say sometimes, you know, we spit out the seeds and keep what's good. You know, you may have to look at those things sometimes when you've got earthly fathers who are broken examples. But there's also godly examples in our lives too that we can look at. People who've poured into us. I count not only my own father, but my father-in-law and other men and women who've poured into me throughout my life to encourage me and strengthen me in my faith. So follow your heavenly father first. Then look at those godly examples and see how they can train you and how they can lead you up to be the father that God's calling you to be, to be the mother that God's calling you to be. And as we're going to keep talking about it too, how you can also look to others in the next generation to what God wants you to do. The second principle I want to give you after follow your father is adore your family. So these come in an order intentionally. First, we get our focus on God, and then we get our heart right in relationship to God and our family. In Ephesians chapter 5, verses 25 through 29, we read this. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water with the word. You see, it says first, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And then it shows what does that love look like? How did Jesus Christ love the church? He gave himself up for her. He did it for the purpose so that all of us could be sanctified, made holy, that all of us could come into a right relationship with him. He gave everything. Philippians would say that he lowered himself, he humiliated himself so that we could be able to have a relationship with him. And it says that as husbands, that we are to love our wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. I don't know about you husbands in this room, but that's a pretty high standard. It's pretty hard to reach sometimes. But it's that agape love we often so often talk about. It's that self-sacrificing unconditional love that Jesus Christ showed to us. So men in this room, if you are a husband, if you are, even whether you're a father or not, this is the type of love God calls us to. 
These are the same passages where wives are called to submit to their husbands. But then Paul goes on to say so much more for the husbands than to set the standard so high of what we're called to do as we're called to love our wives as Christ loves the church. Let's see the next part of what's said too. It says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, us, nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Paul lays out clearly a high standard that as we love ourselves, as we take care of ourselves, we're supposed to nourish and cherish our wives. And that love continues to our family as well. I'm sorry, guys, you can't love your wife and hate your kids. It's just not going to work that way. And um, you, you also are called to nourish and cherish them. And, and many scripture passages speak to, as we'll look at some of these as well, as how often it comes out in ways of instruction and in teaching them the wisdom of the Lord and pouring into them. But it begins first with, one, a right heart relationship with the Lord, and two, a right heart relationship with our wives when we love them as Christ loves us, as we give of ourselves and, and give wholly to them. The th third point that I want you to get, the third principle, train your children. So follow your father, adore your family, train your children. In Proverbs 22, 6, we read that we are to train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. Pastor Brooks shared this verse last Monday on his five for five. And, and some of the key words here, training up a child, it's a, it's a gardening term. It's an it's a idea of what a, a vine dresser might do as he takes the vine and helps to steer it in the direction it needs to go. If you see one of these ornamental bamboo plants, you know, it doesn't just braid itself when it grows. Someone had to do that to it. And, and those plants have certain directions that they want to go. And sometimes those are outside of the plan of the gardener, and then sometimes they work with what the gardener's trying to do. So we work with our kids, and here's a pop quiz for you too, another one. Question is, how many in this room have kids? Raise your hand if you have kids of any age. All right, now keep your hand up if all of your kids, if you have more than one, if all your kids are perfectly identical in every way. Keep your hand up. Nobody's hands are up. That's a pretty quick poll. Are all of our kids different if we have kids? Yeah, and those of you who've worked with kids, whether you're a teacher, preschool, or you led our VBS at some point, or you've worked in children's ministry, are every kid, is every kid different from one another? That's part of that training up, that every kid's going to have natural directions they're going, natural bents they're working towards. The second part, though, is in the way they should go. We look at the Word of God as the standard, that as we're training up our children, that we train them up in the way they should go, to help them to see God's plan, to see God's purpose in their lives and how he is calling them to follow after him and the hope is that we're looking forward to a day that we see that they are walking with God and not departing from his word in Deuteronomy chapter 6 we see the example of how the Israelites were called to pass on God's word it's where we see that that, that it's challenged that the Lord our God the Lord is one love the Lord your God with all your heart your soul your mind your strength and, and then it goes on to talk about how we do this. It says, these words that I command you today shall be in your heart. Look at how they stay in your heart and in the hearts of your family. It says, you shall teach them diligently to your children. You shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and you shall, they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Some of you might have scriptures in your house. In a way, you're living out some of this passage right here when you put scriptures up on your walls and you can be able to encourage that. But it's more than just putting the scriptures on your walls or even having a, a scripture verse that might be on your arm or on a bracelet. It's more than that. It's about living it in every part of every day. Whether you're in the car, whether you're sitting at the dinner table, whether you're going, whether you're coming, whether you're laying down or getting up, 
wherever you're going, it's an opportunity to train your children, to pour into them the words of God, to train them up in the righteousness of God throughout the day, not just when you're sitting in church, not just during quiet times or in family worship, but it's an opportunity throughout your day to share a little bit of what God's teaching you, to look at the moment or the conversation and to say, what does God's word say about that? Or how can we apply this? And those great conversations happen throughout. If we're in church just maybe, you know, one, two, three hours out of a week, how many more hours in the week are we missing to pour into the hearts and lives of the kids that that are all around us? We have great opportunities to train children, to, to pour into them and to encourage them. And it begins not only in the church, but it's built primarily on the home. Recent research is showing out of Notre Dame, uh, the University of Notre Dame, that a sociologist there has done studies, and he says that the number one factor of what children will do in their faith with the Lord has to do with where their parents are in their own faith. It says the single most powerful causal influence on the religious lives of American teenagers and young adults is the religious lives of their parents. This researcher, Christian Smith, the sociology professor, he says that it's almost as if there's a glass ceiling, that wherever the parents are, then that's what they should expect. Their kids should not be able to excel beyond. Now, of course, God can do amazing work, and many of you know, those of you who've been saved as adults, that God can transform any heart at any age. But if you are a believer and you're walking with the Lord and you're trying to raise up kids or lead kids, they're looking to you as their first example. And as you train your children, you should see the fact that God is calling you to set a good standard, that he is calling you to live it, not just to talk it, but to live it out through each and every day. And that many ways we may be setting the barrier of where our kids would go. And I want to challenge you too, if you're not a father or a mother today, or even if you're a grandparent and your kids aren't here all the time, I want you to pray for the people around you that God may be putting in your life. There are moms who don't don't have husbands in their lives, that they're raising kids and they have to be father and mother at the same time. And there's dads who are doing the same thing, that they have to be father and mother as well. And there may be opportunities that God wants you to be able to be there for those families as he leads you to, to help them, to encourage them, and to even train them. There's kids up in our kids' ministry even this morning. I pointed out in our first service that Jeremy wasn't able to be in here. And he told me, he said, I'll try to be there, but I don't know if I got enough volunteers. And, and days like this can be tough, but it's been happening more often than not. There's kids in our preschool ministry that need volunteers to be there for them, not just to make sure they don't go run off property, but to also make sure that they get into the word, that they grow, that they're strengthened. And we're looking for volunteers. We're looking for help throughout these areas, not just to fill a spot, but to truly fulfill a calling, to see the opportunity to train children for the next generation. The people of Israel, I pointed out Deuteronomy 6, the people of Israel, they were told to pass it on to every generation. And if you read the Old Testament, you'll see that almost every generation failed to do this. Read the book of Judges, and it would say that they would forget again and again the things that their fathers had taught them or the things that their fathers had done. They would forget the law of the Lord from generation to generation because they would not pass it on. They didn't live out the truth of Deuteronomy 6. They didn't live out the continual training and pouring into their kids to train their children to get them ready. And one of the reasons we have to do this is the fourth principle. We have to hold back the enemy. The fourth principle to remember is hold back your enemy. We live in a real battlefield. Ephesians 6 says that we don't wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against principalities and the the rulers of this dark age. And it's talking about spiritual forces. It's talking about demonic forces. It's talking about the work of Satan to wreck homes and to wreck families. And the more we look at God's word and then we look at our culture, we see that the world is changing at an ever-increasing rate each and every day. 
whether it be in the schools or whether it be in their, their atmosphere around their peers or just the culture they're taking in constantly through YouTube or television or the next, next streaming service, whatever it is, our kids are constantly being barraged with an inundation of things that are just going against God and against his kingdom. And if we don't hold back the enemy, not only in our training, but also even within our own lives to say, we're gonna follow God and live for him. If we don't realize the danger of who the enemy is, and what he wants to do, then we could risk losing our children for all of eternity. First Peter 5, 8 through 9, and talking about the suffering and the persecution that believers are facing, says, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, adversary, Satan means adversary. Satan is the one who's the accuser. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Resist him, firm in your faith, knowing that the same kinds of struggles and suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. Again, First Peter's writing to people being persecuted. And so I don't want to diminish that in any way in the context, but at the same time, I want you to see that we live in a culture where standing up on the truth of God's word is quickly becoming the minority opinion. Standing up on the truth of God's word is quickly becoming something that would be persecuted and even shouted down. And our children are going to inherit in the next generation even more pressures to compromise and to go against God's word. And we have a real enemy. And it's not just the person across the aisle. It's not just the person who disagrees with you wherever you may be. Ultimately, the enemy is the devil who seeks to kill and steal and destroy. And we have a real enemy that we're to guard against. And as husbands, as wives, as mothers, as fathers, as grandparents, or even just as the saints of the church who are called to pour into the next generation, we have to hold back the enemy. We have to pray for God to work in mighty ways. We have to ask God, like he says in Ephesians 6, to, to give us the full armor of God that we can stand up against the devil's evil schemes. We have to realize that we're in a real battle and that it's not just the day-to-day -day that we're going through, but we truly have an enemy that we have to hold back. And parents, we're called to take this front line, to realize that he truly wants to destroy our homes. The fifth principle that I want to give you is encourage your kids. You could easily come down to training your children and holding back your enemy and then lose it all in this one right here. Training your children and encouragement go hand in hand because if we only pour in all of the instruction and all of the discipline, which so, is easily, so easily comes, but we forget the fact that we also need to encourage, they're probably gonna reject much of what we just said because we took away the joy of what they were trying to do. I'll also admit, honestly, this is probably the area that's hardest for me. It's, it's easy for me. It would have been so easy for me when Luke called and said, I just popped two tires to just blow it. It would have been so easy to just lose my cool. I say that as a testimony of one time I actually did it right. But I feel like there's been hundreds of times that I've done it wrong. Where it's so easy to just jump the gun and get overwhelmed and just blow your top and to discourage your kids. It's too easy. It takes work to be intentional, to not discourage them. We actually get two verses here, Colossians 3, 21. See what Paul says here. He says, fathers, do not provoke your children lest they become discouraged. And that gives a little bit more context here. It's totally in the negative. It's saying, fathers, don't do this. You're going to discourage them. Look at Ephesians and what he says there. In Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4, he says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. Discouragement is the exact opposite of teaching them in the word of God. When we discourage our kids, when we weigh them down, or when we just blow, our, blow it ourselves and forget who's the actual one who's in charge, we lose the opportunity to pour into them the discipline and the instruction of the Lord. We lose the audience, and we can't speak into their lives because we've just weighed them down with our words, 
and we've discouraged them. I'm not saying we compromise on the truth of God's word when we talk to our kids, but we need to see the same grace that God gives to us every time we fail is the same grace he calls us to parent with, the same grace that he calls us to encourage them with. All right, last two points. They both come from the same place. So if you're turning with me, you can turn over to Psalm 127 is where we're going to be looking. Just five verses that say so much. The first principle that you see here is remember your calling. And I'll say this is for everyone in the room, regardless of kids or no kids. Remember your calling. Remember what are the priorities that God's given you in life. We started with follow your father. As we follow the Lord, we follow his plan and his purpose for our lives. And that's a high calling for every one of us. It comes before profession. It comes before any mission. It comes before anything that we're doing in this world that God's called us to that. But if we're family, if we're part of a family, if we're husbands, wives, or even if we're kids, God's given us relationships that we are bound to. And those have to be high on that priority list. If other things start to edge them out, we are losing the calling that God's placed on our life. When we take the covenant of marriage, when a husband takes a wife, he is taking on a priority that has to stay next to God, one of the highest priorities. It stems back to that love for your family, that, that agape love for your family, that you keep your calling and your priorities in the right order, that work and decisions that are going on around you can't take the place of the family that God has given you. If you look on Twitter or LinkedIn, a lot of our social media, people have figured out ways to write up their bio to try to explain who they are. Usually on LinkedIn, it's going to be the most professional types of bios. But early on in Twitter, I started noticing, maybe even on Facebook a bit too, especially among believers, that bios are often shaped in the right order. They're often shaped with a, with a mindset of remembering their calling. You'll see someone who writes, Christ follower, servant of Jesus, follower of my Lord, You'll see that in the first place. In the next, it'll say their relationships, the family relationships that are closest to them. Husband or mother, father, daughter, son. It shows those relationship and family bonds. And then you start to see more of who they are and how they identify themselves, how they start to show who they are. But more and more bios are starting to change. Not necessarily good or bad. It's just Twitter, whatever. I don't care if your bio shows this or not. I, I care more about what we're doing and how we're living this out in our calling. But bios are starting to change. They're funnier, they're, they're sillier, or they're starting to show what we advocate on the social causes or what we advocate for politically or where we come down on different lines. And when we remember our calling, we realize that everything else is secondary first to our love for God and then our love for those he's put into our lives. And I would say not only love for him and love for our closest families, but also love for our believers, our, our brothers and sisters in Christ that he's given to us. These should be high callings that he's given to us, that these relationships are priority. So remember your calling and keep relationships in a great priority. Don't let work, don't let distractions, don't let studies and education, don't let all of these other things chase them out and push them aside and get in the way of those relationships that God has given you. You think about when you go to a memorial service or to a funeral and you listen to a eulogy, rarely do you hear people talk about all of the hours that someone worked. Rarely do you hear someone talk about all of the money that someone made. If they talk about that, it's usually in the way that they cared for their family or in the way that they sought to improve their community. The things that we want to be said about us one day is how we loved our family, how we cared for our kids, how we cared for our spouses. We want to be said how we showed kindness and love and even the, the love of God to people we came in contact with as we would go and, and do the work that he called us to do, whatever that looked like in whatever context. One of the challenges we put out is that we should be everyday missionaries. It's that we are on mission with God where we live, work, and play. 
And even that is a part of that calling, that wherever we go, that God has called us to go with him and to go in his calling and with his mission. The last principle I have for you comes out of Psalm 127, three through five. So I'm gonna go ahead and read the whole passage for you right now. So let's look. So as we remember our calling, look at Psalm 127, one through two. It says, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchmen stay awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. What it's saying in these verses is that unless God is in it, unless the Lord is doing the work, then everything we do is for nothing. Everything we're struggling for, everything we're trying to build, as we go through life, if God's not in it and God's not in front of it, it's going to be all for nothing. We may accumulate a lot of things, we may see a lot of successes, but in the end, what's it going to count for if God wasn't in it from the beginning? And it's significant that he gives two illustrations. One is the house and the other is the city, whether it be in the home or whether it be in our governments. If God's not forefront, if we're not able to put him first in the decisions that we're making as a people, then he is going to cause it all to be for nothing. But let's look and see, not only do we remember our calling, the last principle is you shoot your arrows. Look at the rest of these verses, Psalm 127, verses 3 through 5. It says, Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. There are some days I don't always feel like their children are a heritage from the Lord, I know. But children are a heritage from the Lord. It's, it's an ongoing lineage. Children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb, a reward. Like arrows in the hands of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Look at this next verse, what it says. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gates. I think I heard one time it was like 10 or 12 as a quiver full, but I don't think most of us are aiming for 10 or 12. But the point is, is that children are a blessing from God. And in the same passages that are helping us to remember that God has to be forefront of all the decisions we're making, the same scripture of Psalm 127, 1 and 2, goes on to talk about how do we view our families. Do we see our children as, an, as a blessing? Do we see our children as a reward from God and a heritage for the future? And it says that the blessing that we see are arrows that are in the hands of a warrior. It's the blessing of realizing that one day that they can bring glory and honor to God. They can bring even glory and honor to our families. That we don't live as much in our honor culture as some places in the world. They focus on that. But at the same time, we want to have kids that are going to raise up and rise up and become ones who can bring honor to our family and honor to God. And it's saying that we should look at it with this end in mind. The thing about arrows in a quiver, you can be a great warrior, but you're not a great archer until you can shoot an arrow in a great way. We could have a house full of kids, but if we don't deploy them in the best way possible, we're not much of a warrior at all. The blessing that he's challenging to, to say is we shoot our arrows. And what I would challenge you today is say, as we go back even thinking about following our father, and how we build our family and our relationships and in love and in training, encouragement as we hold back the enemy, all the things we've been talking about is that no matter where you are in the parenting process that you should always think of the end in mind. You should always keep the end in mind. Arrows were created to be a place of, to be a tool for shooting. If you are the, the parent of a little one today and you don't have middle schoolers or high schoolers or or a college students, if you're a parent like that today, then you may be thinking that 18 years is a long way off. As, as two that are about to be in college this year, I'll tell you, it's not a long way off. It's not far at all. It'll be here before you know it. And, and the irony of this sermon, it's the only sermon I've ever preached twice at two places. I preached this sermon 17 years ago 
um, over 17 years ago in Union, South Carolina at my last church. So when Brooke said I had the chance to preach on Father's Day, I said, well, there's one I can preach again. I don't ever do this. So I dusted it off, worked on it a whole lot more because it needed some work. So it's been a long time. But I've never done that here. And one of the reasons I wanted to do it is because this message, these words, have actually stayed with me for all those 17 years and not because I've done it all right. Jen, if you would, put those back up there for me. I want you all to see them. Because all of these points, they spell out the word fathers. And it just kind of came to me when I was working on that sermon all those years ago. It was spelling out the word fathers, and it's just a way to remember some of the key principles. I'm not going to say it's exhaustive. I'd love to hear from you all if you have other things that you've taken from God's word that you feel like has been helpful to you. But as I look at this and I examine my life and I look at how I'm doing, again, I told you, encourage your kids, probably my worst area, the one that I'm challenged on the most, the one that I know I need to work on the most sometimes, is, is encourage your kids. You know, looking honestly at ourselves and thinking, how am I doing at following the Father? Because ultimately, I can't give to my family, I can't give to y'all, I can't give to anyone else what I'm not first receiving from Him. How am I doing at following Him? How am I doing at adoring my family, showing agape love to my family to unconditional love to my family how am I doing at that so I encourage you wherever you are in that role of bringing up kids realize that eventually they have to leave eventually you want them to leave you know you actually do get there where you want them to move on so wherever you are in that process remember and begin with the end in mind that one day you have to deploy them you have to shoot them you have to send them out And do you want them to go with honor or do you want them to go with shame? Do you want them to go in the Lord or do you want them to go their own way? And as you do that, that doesn't just end when they hit 18 or 25 or maybe 30 or whenever that time comes. It can be a lifelong process as you keep working to be the father or the mother or even just the the surrogate father, the spiritual father that God has called you to be. Believe it or not, I had to cut some stuff. Things like how Paul would talk about Timothy as his son in the Lord one that he would pour into and just mentor and train, one that he would pour into. And God may be calling you to do that as well. You may not have kids, but God may be telling you, some of these younger men around here, they need a spiritual father, someone who can come alongside them and be a mentor. Maybe you as women in here, you see other women that you could be that for as well. Spiritual mothers, ones that could pour into them. And many of these same principles fall in line because we have to show that love of Christ as we follow after the Lord as we seek to pour into the next generation to encourage them and to continue to keep what's important, most important. So throughout today, I want you to to look back at this. I saw some of you were taking pictures. You can also um, email me or um, contact me if you want to get a copy of this or if you haven't written it down. But I just encourage you to take it, look at it, and think about how you can use this as a way of just evaluating yourself. Use it as kind of a scorecard. And again, it's not exhaustive. I'd love to hear some others think of other biblical principles you've taken away from God's word to say this is how God has challenged you. Right now, we're gonna pray, and as we pray, whatever God's calling you to do, I want you to take time to do it. Think about it. And I have to kind of circle back to the very beginning where we started. The whole message of the best, most heroic father is our heavenly father who's done everything necessary for us to have a relationship with him. He's the one who initiated on our behalf when he sent his son to die for us. And now he's waiting patiently for all who will receive him to have eternal life. If that's you here today and you've not trusted in in God as your father, if you've not come to faith in Jesus Christ and trusted in the salvation he brings, come up here and talk to me today. Reach out to me. I would love to let you know about the great truth of God's word and the gospel message that God loves you so much that he has done everything necessary by sending Jesus to die for you so that you don't have to be separated from him for all eternity and under his punishment, but you can be under his grace for the rest of your life 
and through, throughout all of eternity and forever. So if that's where you are today, take time to come talk with me. Or if you'd like, you can fill out one of those connection cards in that next step section. Fill it out and drop it in our offering plate, and I'll be in touch with you this week. We'd love to talk more about that. We always want to let you know how to take that next step of, of trusting in Jesus Christ. For me, it began when I was six years old, when I went and asked my mom. I went and asked her, how do I become a Christian? How do I trust in Jesus? And she said, admit you're a sinner, that you've trusted, that you've gone your own way, that every one of us have sinned and you're one of us, and, and turn to him in repentance. And right there, the best I could at six years old, I knelt down in my living room next to our, our ugly couch. That's all I remember. It's kind of an ugly couch, but it was back in the 80s. But I knelt down next to this ugly couch, and I remember praying and asked Jesus to come into my life, take away my sins, and give me his salvation as I trusted in his work on the cross. If that's you today, I'd love to share with you more. You could even pray just like I did that day to just ask Jesus to take your sins away and turn from those sins and truly trust in your Father who's done everything needed for your salvation. It's only in that that any relationship we have can be right. It's only in that that any of our life can be well built. It's only in that relationship with the Lord that truly we can be founded on the things that are going to last forever. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, we've covered a lot, and I thank you that, that every one of your words goes out for your purpose and your plan. And so, Lord, um, I pray that, 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 they, that everyone here today will mostly hear your word even more than my words, and that, that your word will go out and do the work that you have intended for it in each and every heart. We pray you work in your Holy Spirit to convict us of a sin, encourage us where we need your encouragement, and strengthen us to live for you and for your glory. In Jesus' name we pray.